The Enneacast is sponsored in part by Your Enneagram Coach. Did you know you can learn how to walk people through the Enneagram and see their lives transform? All from the comfort of your own home while also making an excellent income. Find out how by going to yourenneagramcoach.com slash BEC. There, you can become a certified coach and help others discover just who it is God made them to be. Again, that's yourenneagramcoach.com slash BEC. I just had this constant issues and pain in our family that I had to learn, okay, I got to get out of this house and I got to go play in the neighborhood with my buddies. I've got to go find my own way. I've got to have good ideas to get me into happiness. And what became a kind of way of life was just really looking for life out there. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good. The bad. And the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God. And everyone else. From Love Thy Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. 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 To the Inia cast. Welcome to the Enneacast. I am Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. Every episode we walk you through the Enneagram. This season is all about story, and we are finishing up the head triad with the story of Type 7, commonly known as... The Enthusiast. The Enthusiast. The Joyful Person. The Joyful Person. I always feel like we're in better moods when we talk about Sevens. Well, it is hard to be in bad moods you yeah. know, when you're talking about Sevens. Yeah, they're just like party people. Yeah. All of our Type episodes will be expounding on the content found in our workbook, Mapping Your Enneagram Story. So if you haven't yet listened to episode one from the season that walks you through this workbook and how to use it, I encourage you to do that first. So to get a copy of the Mapping Your Enneagram Story workbook, just go to mappingyourstory.com. You can listen to the season and this episode without going through the workbook, but you're going to get a lot more out of it if you actually go through the workbook in a way that's specific to your life. So again, to pick up that workbook, head over to mappingyourstory.com. Okay, Sam, so before we dive in, let's do a little reminder for everybody about type sevens. Type seven, when they're healthy, they are funny and playful and imaginative. They're not afraid to be alone. They're curious. They radiate optimism. They're highly enthusiastic. They're lighthearted. And when they're unhealthy, they avoid anxiety and pain at all costs. They often joke to distract themselves. They fear commitment. They can be spacey, scattered, unreliable, and irresponsible. And I just want to say this, like Sevens, you're going to hear some stuff in this episode that will be challenging and will be hard to hear, but please just just stay with it. Stick with it. I promise we're going to get to some good news. So endure the tough stuff. Don't fast forward. Don't put it on two times speed. Like yeah, let, yeah. It, let it unravel yeah. as yeah, it's yeah, supposed yeah, yeah. to. Uh, so this season, we're looking at how the Enneagram plus life story equals clarity. And we really need both our Enneagram as well as our life story in order to have a full picture of ourselves. So let's explore the story for type seven. So Sam, where does that story start? Yeah, it starts in childhood. And for sevens, there's a childhood theme of prolonged childhood and loss of paradise. So they either, you know, maybe lived at home for a few additional years while most of their peers were maybe moving out and and going, you know, off to work or school. There was just a prolonged sense of childhood and innocence. You know, they, they didn't really have a whole lot of 
negative memories in childhood or if they did they were able to put a positive spin on them or they had parents who put a positive spin on them too quickly of all the enneagram types sevens have the most childlike posture and wonder it's common for even like adult sevens to have parts of themselves that can be very childlike and i don't mean that in a negative way yeah not childish they have a really deep sort of a playfulness, you know, a real deep sense of curiosity. But there's a real sense that the seven carries their child self with them into the future. But there was a sense of paradise lost at some point. Jesse, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there was some moment in the life of a seven in which there was just no way to continue to hold together this idyllic view of the world. Either a relationship was lost or some sense of safety was lost or something really painful happened. But there was something, some moment in their life in which despite their their best efforts and their greatest outlooks, there was just no way for them to continue to look at the world as essentially an innocent wondrous place exclusively. So if you have a copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, you know, look through the life turns that you mapped and take note if you see this theme of loss of paradise or a prolonged childhood appear in any of the life turns that you mapped. This experience leaves the child seven with an unconscious childhood message, which it's not okay to depend on others for anything. Yeah, there's that sense of if I allow other people to say that they're going to take care of me and they're going to do things for me, there can be a real sense that like they may not deliver because at some point in my life, somebody said that they were going to do something for me. They didn't do it. And it caused me a great deal of pain. And because they didn't fulfill what they said they were going to, I suffered and the people around me suffered. And so what the child seven learned is, don't depend on other people for everything in life. Like if you want it, you need to go out there and you need to get it yourself and take care of it and push for it. It leads the sevens wanting a good thing, which is to be happy. There's obviously nothing wrong with being happy. It's, you know, joy is one of the fruits of the spirit. And I know joy and happiness aren't the same thing, but they they look pretty similar when, when you see somebody manifesting that. So the sevens crave and desire this this good and true thing, which is to be happy. Yeah, and like a substantial happy, not a shallow happiness, right. but like a real substantial happiness. And here's the deal. All this stuff that happens in our early childhood, this backstory sets the stage for the nurturing of our false self. And this starts when the seven begins to settle. We're all prone to settle for substitutes. And for the seven, what they want is to be happy. But believing that they cannot get that, what they settle for instead is pleasure. And here's why. Pleasure promises them two things. It promises them freedom. In other words, no one's going to control you. No one's going to force you to do things. No one's going to deny you the things that are going to make you happy. You're not going to be locked into a horrible commitment that's going to torture you for the rest of your life. You're going to have freedom. And the second thing is that pleasure offers them no pain. Come and love pleasure. And then what you get to experience is a life that is enjoyable and not a life that is painful. And because the seven begins to believe that pleasure will give them what they want, over time, pleasure becomes an idol. So the seven will easily devote themselves to finding pleasure and even be willing to go to great lengths in order to gain it. And in fact, they begin to sacrifice three good things in order to please this idol of pleasure. What are those three things? Okay, so first, pleasure requires them to sacrifice inner peace because inner peace carries with it the idea of contentment. And when you are chasing pleasure, the inherent idea behind that is that you're already discontent. 
Yeah. So you can't have inner peace and a relentless pursuit of pleasure. Those things can't coincide together. The second sacrifice that's required is present satisfaction and genuine fulfillment. Here's the thing. You're so excited about, you know, whatever, the vacation you're going to go on. But when the moment comes and you're on the vacation, it's not quite as awesome as you thought it was going to be. So you start dreaming about the next vacation or you dream about the next meal or you dream about the next thing you're going to buy. When you're chasing pleasure, you really can't be fulfilled in the moment. And the third thing that they have to sacrifice is depth in relationships because relationships are beautiful and good and joyful, but they are also painful uh, and they are hard and they require commitment. You know, in Christian marriage, when we make a covenant to somebody, it means I'm sticking with you no matter what, through the good and the bad, for better, for worse. When we choose friends and we endure through hard times, those things, that requires depth and it requires vulnerability and honesty and all these things that are are very uncomfortable. They require grit. The flip side of thinking about that is that pleasure requires a certain level of shallowness in relationships because even relationships exist for my pleasure. Hmm. And the moment that a relationship isn't benefiting my pleasure, I'm not as interested in that relationship anymore. So there can be no depth because there's no commitment and because it's a self-oriented view of the relationship. And in this pursuit of pleasure and this cycle of sacrificing to this idol constantly, the seven creates the perfect conditions to grow their deadly sin. And their deadly sin is gluttony. And we're not just referencing food um, when we talk about gluttony, although that is kind of a component. Uh, we're talking about just this relentless energy. Enough is never enough. It's similar to greed, but it's it's different because there's a sense of for greed, it's all about acquisition. But for gluttony, it's all about consumption. I want to you know embody this thing. I want to consume this thing. And it's got this relentlessness to it. Here are some of the ways that the seven grows gluttony in pursuit of pleasure. So they demand variety and they seek options. Remember, it's not just it's not just one thing. It's all the things. It's, you know, Jesse, you always tell the story of your son, like wanting every flavor of ice cream. You know, so it's it's like that. Uh, they always seek new experiences. You know, when they're on vacation, they're Googling what we, what can we do in the city or what can we do in the next city that I want to go to or the next thing that we want to do. It's it's never satisfied. And they're always afraid of missing out. So they won't RSVP to events because they're always afraid that something else might come along that's better or more fun. Um, and when they're at the event that they decided to go to, they're always wondering if they missed out on something even cooler or more extravagant or, or, or more Instagram worthy, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be that's driving the seven. So they just, they grow gluttony in all these various ways. So again, if you have mapping your Enneagram story, take a look at your emotional map and notice some of your dominant emotions. Can you see gluttony attached to any of these memories? And if you're like, well, I'm not really gluttonous, you may need to do some more work because often our gluttony is growing unnoticed. And that's because sin is adaptable and it learns how to defend itself. And the seven's defense of their sin is through their psychological defense mechanism known as sublimation. Sublimation is the idea that anyone or anything painful is put out of awareness. Pain is buried. And when a seven is sublimating something, what is happening is they're attempting to turn it into something good, into something redemptive, into something positive without sufficient time for transformation. The reality is that when we experience painful things and hard things, 
it just takes time for those to, to be turned into something that's more redemptive. It's a lot easier to slap a bumper sticker on it and just kind of try to say, well, God works through all good things, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, yeah. I, I kind of rambled there, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Again, it's called a deadly sin for a reason. Gluttony is destructive, but it tries to disguise itself as something good or helpful. And the inner mantra that the seven can end up living with is the good opportunities of this world justify my gluttony. Yeah. I mean, like, look at all the opportunities in the world. Look at all these things. We need to try all these things. Yeah. Like, if this world didn't have so many things to offer, maybe I wouldn't have to consume them all. <laughs> but they do all exist, and I need to try them all. Have you seen the Parkinson Rec episode where one of the guys from the town hall meeting says, if sugar is so bad, why did Jesus make it taste so good? <laughs> it's just like that's the attitude. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's what immediately came to mind while you were talking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so here's the question then. In light of all this, so where does this leave the seven? Yeah, it leaves them excessive or demanding, but it also leaves them afraid, you know, afraid of what could happen if they don't have all the opportunities or what happens if I miss out. Yeah. So we promised you guys that it wouldn't all be bad news. So we've we've gone through the bulk of the bad news now. So let's turn and let's look at something that's hopeful. The good news is that God doesn't leave us here. And for every person, there's a moment in our story where we encounter Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the true enthusiast. We see the true joyful person. So Sam, how how do we see some of these true enthusiast traits in Jesus? Yeah, we see it through his festiveness, through his joy of life, but we also see it through his ability to embrace pain. He loved kids and he loved to like, you know, be with kids and had this childlike part of himself. You know, in order for anyone to gain our trust, they have to give us two things. First, they have to empathize with our wounds. And then second, they have to show us their authority. And Jesus gives us both these things. You know, sevens, how does Jesus empathize with your wounds? Because Jesus lost true paradise and experienced a deeply painful world. He knows what it is to be experiencing absolute joy and absolute pleasure And to suddenly have that snatched away and to be immersed in a world that is deeply painful. Jesus also shows his authority by affirming our true self for the seven. He celebrated so much that he was accused of gluttony. In Matthew 11, 19, we see that the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he's... He's not downing parties or, or fun or laughter. Like he's he's embracing those things, but with sobriety. So he's affirming the true self, but he also confronts the false self. He endured suffering to obtain a joy of substance, not avoidance. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And the question is like, how did Jesus do this? How could Jesus love life so much? to love to share meals with friends, to love to celebrate, to love being with kids and having this childlike part of him and yet not succumb to gluttony. Like how how did he do that? And the way that he did that is that he believed the father who told him, you will be taken care of. He believed that God knew his needs and would meet those needs and that he could depend on God to meet those needs. And so Seven's What is Jesus saying to you? He turns to you and he says to you, you will be taken care of. Luke 14, 27 and 28 says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? 
that is a reminder that we're called to a joy of substance, and we're called to count the cost, to consider what it means to truly follow Jesus. And out of believing this message that Jesus speaks to us, we can then start to see the redemption of our true self. The Holy Spirit is able to work into the life of the seven what they originally wanted, which is to be happy. And one of the ways he often does this is through the virtue of sobriety. And, you know, we're not just talking about sobriety from alcohol here. You know, it's it's having a sober mind that scripture talks about. It's the ability to see the world for what it truly is, mm-hmm. the good and the bad. Yeah. It's being able to be content, to be satisfied, to quench that longing that the sevens might feel. It's the way forward is to become realistic. Their engagement with God brings them in touch with the dark parts of themselves. And through grace, they can enter a joy of substance as opposed to joy of avoidance. And instead of growing the deadly sin of gluttony, this virtue of sobriety grows something else. And it grows the fruit of groundedness, the ability to truly be rooted in the moment in such a way that you become a real blessing to the people around you. And you have the ability to make reasonable judgments and have reasonable expectations for the life that you're inhabiting. Groundedness is a necessary thing to truly love the people around you and to truly experience love from the people around you. Again, refer to mapping your Enneagram story timeline here. Do you see sobriety growing through any of your turns? It's okay if you don't. You know, virtues, they they take time to grow. So ask the Holy Spirit to help grow sobriety in your story. And if you do see it, then praise the Lord. He's redeeming your story and making you more complete in him. And as the seven continues to walk with God and be transformed instead of reflecting a gluttonous and a demanding spirit, their true self starts to reflect God's character. And sevens, here's what you reflect back to the world. You reflect God's joy and God's abundance that he loves to give and he loves to celebrate. And this story isn't just an invitation for sevens. There's an invitation for all of us here, and that is to joyously celebrate God and his creation and to share your happiness. Okay, so that was the Enneagram story for type seven. And when we come back, we will be talking with pastor and ministry coach, John Fouché. Stay with us. The Enneacast is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood offers social justice internships supported by Christian community for young adults, just like Jordan Lenup from Indiana. I completed LPN with a greater understanding of the beauty and importance of being a part of the local church. Ready to see how Love Thy Neighborhood could impact your life? Learn more and apply at lovethyneighborhood.org. Welcome back to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. Our guest today is John Fouché. John has been a pastor for 20 years. He's also the founder of People Launching, where he's coached over 300 people in their vocation and calling. As part of his coaching, John helped start the Gospel Enneagram Project, using the Enneagram to help equip pastors, church planners, and leaders. And he is a seven on the Enneagram. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited to talk with you. I guess uh, start here, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what role does the Enneagram play in your work or life? So, yeah, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina and have four kids, two in their 20s, one's married, and two elementary school kids that we adopted later. And we, my wife and I have been married 25 years and I pastored for 20 years, mostly coaching people on the side or church planters 
And about four years ago, I started something called People Launching that you just mentioned. I used the Enneagram for years, since 2005, and it was useful for me to bring in character and growth and really talk about matters of the heart. Uh, motivations before we just got into working on an organization or how to have your best life now. And then along the way, developed assessments and you know online courses. So that's how I got into the Enneagram. Uh, but my day job, what I'm doing most of the time is really helping people with the clarity on the calling and their organization growing their leadership. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, so whenever you heard about Type 7, like what resonated with you? So I actually had started a church already in 2003, and uh, I was planning on starting another church only two years later. And, uh, you know, so much for like startup mode was done. These people like have pain and now it's time to pass her, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> there, that, that might be a hint. Yeah. Yeah, that was a hint. And, uh, but I had a significant restlessness going on in my heart and uh, went to somebody back in 2005 that does something very similar to what I do today. And he was just reading my mail along with my wife. And uh, at the end of it all, we were like, where, where are you getting this stuff? And that was when he pulled out a book called The Enneagram at the time. So that's that's how I found out that I was just trying to create another heaven on earth. And it was a little haunting to first come to terms with looking in the mirror like, oh, my gosh, do I really just all the time dream up great ideas that are going to be great right now? Uh, and the answer was, yeah, I do that way too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually what happened was I decided to go back to the church I started. I had co-pastored with somebody else and decided to step under him and become an associate pastor and uh, just be present and live in a place that I didn't want to be. And, uh, and for about several weeks, because uh, I was at a really key point, once I decided I'm going to really trust that God is uh, this big, that he could be with me in the pain. Uh, about four weeks later, I was playing with my kids back in the backyard and the sky was blue. And I remember saying to myself out loud, I can't recall a time when I've been happier. And yet none of my circumstances had changed. And then that's what showed me, oh, my gosh, you know, I've got to live life. Uh, present, and I've got to surrender really to the Lord with this. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, What do you see as the gifts that sevens bring to other people and to God? I mean, hope. We all long for a place, you know, an eternal kingdom that God uh, wipes away every tear and that God brings complete justice to this world. And it's a good hope. And a and, you know, um, sevens, when they're willing to be present and in reality, can still very much care for people and point towards something greater and a greater dream uh, that is very much will one day become a reality. So, you know, that's one of the things I appreciate about being a seven. Yeah, that I mean, truthfully, that that forward hope you know, is so crucial. And the irony, of course, is that it's also very hopeful for the fact that we do experience so much pain in this world, you know, so especially if you can get that seven and they're grounded, they can really sit in that space that's like, hey, I'm connected to your pain and pointing towards a future hope and not just sort of a pie in the sky, you know, kind of hopefulness. Yeah. 
if it's okay, I want to I want to change subjects just slightly. In this season, one of the things we're talking about is childhood wounds, and many sevens describe a theme of prolonged childhood and a loss of paradise. You know, looking back on your own life, does that ring true for you? And if so, how? Oh yeah, for sure. My mom, her great grandfather, or my great grandfather, her grandfather, was one of the richest men in the country a hundred years ago, and she lost her parents in a plane crash in the late 40s when she was 14, uh, she was given a very large sum of money. But for her, it was never, it was about the money, but it was more about the connection with what she had lost. When she was a little girl, she remembers after the funeral, all the extended family coming into a the funeral um, home and discussing who was going to take on her and her sister. And they, her and her sister got in the closet and they listened to the whole conversation. And there was relative after relative saying, we can't take them. We can't take them. And, um, and so my mom had this longing to be connected with the parents that she lost in the money. And my great grandfather's reputation was one of her connections. My dad grew up in the Great Depression, um, and he's, his dad was a salesman, insurance salesman, and didn't do well. Uh, he lost a brother in World War II. The other one got shot down. And then when he was 16, his own father uh, had a heart attack, and my dad was the only one in the house and tried to resuscitate him with CPR to learn to Boy Scouts, but couldn't. And so both of my parents had significant woundings and a lot of the pain that they had, they hadn't fully dealt with it by the time I was a child. That what happened was when I turned about 10, the economy really did really, really poor. And we, over the next 10 years from age, my age 10 to 20, we lost everything we owned. Wow. And one of the things I realized that, of course, you know, my mom's anger was really coming out towards my dad. Uh, and it really wasn't completely his fault. It was just larger economic things. But for her, she was losing touch with what was the symbol of the connection to her past. And my father became really passive at that point. He had been a fighter pilot before, but now he'd become really passive and became an alcoholic. And so for 10 years... I just had this constant issues and pain in our in our family that I had to learn, okay, I got to get out of this house and I got to go play in the neighborhood with my buddies. Uh, once I grew of age, I've got to go find my own way. I've got to pull myself by my bootstraps. I've got to have good ideas to get me into happiness. And, and what became a kind of way of life was just really looking for life out there. I mean, when I look at it holistically, that's a big part of my story and a big part of why my default goes towards, I've got to find ideas or got to find ways to get to be a happy place because there's this reaction that a lot of times I don't even realize I'm doing it. Here I go again, trying to save myself again. Man, thank you for sharing. Just there is so much, you know, pain and, and story there. Um, no wonder it was almost inevitable for you to kind of take on the, the traits that you had, like what you're saying. It's like, I have to find a survival way and a way forward. We talked a little bit ago about sevens wanting to be happy, but settling for pleasure. You know, is there even a recent time in your life that you've suddenly realized, oh man, I'm, I'm settling for pleasure. I'm making an idol out of pleasure. 
Yeah, so I do it in little ways, uh, more often than the big ways I did as a teenager. I definitely think, you know, one of the little ways, uh, it's funny. It's not funny at all, but I'm finding myself willing to risk a, a cruise right now. And uh, right now, yeah. you can find some cheap tickets. <laughs> Like, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, like, and I'm like, well, let's cancel school. Let's go, you know, uh, <laughs> and, uh, just totally overlooking the reality. Then it's okay to be lighthearted uh, about things. And it's okay to sometimes do that. But when you just have that reaction to just be happy all the time, you know, that sometimes you're doing things that is totally not really based on in reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my wife's an Enneagram 6, and if I said, hey, let's go on a cruise during the middle of the corona, she would just, she'd just spontaneously combust. That would just be the <laughs> end of her right then and there. Yeah, I've seen like a like a post, like what would each Enneagram type is doing during the corona outbreak, and I think that the 7 one had something to do with like booking flights or booking like plane tickets and, <laughs> and just like Leolo. <laughs> John, you belong on a poster. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that, that we spent some time talking about is this idea that, you know, for you as a type seven, when you reflect on the on the message that God looks at you as a good father and he says, you're going to be taken care of, you know, what part of that message resonates with you and what impact does that have on you as a person? I think the part that resonates with me is I don't question as much, is God going to take care of me long term? Uh, or is God going to take care of my future. I mean, I really am an optimist. I really do believe in the Bible, and I do believe God makes it right in the end. Um, I think, does God take care of me in my pain? That's the question I have. You know, I, there are times with my work, of course, I have a lack of money coming in, uh, and what I can start to do is start reacting very similarly to my my mom, anger and fear and uh, but but when I look at it in the face and I lean into it, it then say, okay, God, are you going to meet me here? Because I'm right now not feeling taken care of. That 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 is tends to be really helpful. And I realize my circumstances don't need to change. Yeah. How have you seen this like sober mindedness grow in your life as a result of believing that God's message of you know you'll be taken care of that you're okay? Yeah, I think I think a lot of times when. Um, the willingness to look at my shadow or the, the unresourceful side of myself, it actually is a reminder to come back under the light. You know, like I don't need to beat myself up or try harder to get out of it. I just need to really open myself up and, you know, realize I'm far from the light. That's why I'm seeing a shadow. And so just really leaning into the Lord has been really, really helpful. And I think that's a sober mindedness. You know, when you're under the light, you see less shadow and you see more reality. And so I think that sober mindedness can happen naturally just from being completely present with the Lord and being all here. Mm, that's so good. That's mm -hmm. so good. I like that picture. We use the analogy around the office sometimes. We'll talk about uh, I'm I can be very whimsical sort of in my disposition. And we have a, um, a woman on staff who's a type two. And we'll often say that I'm I'm the balloon, but she's the anchor. 
and that a balloon doesn't really help anybody on its own because it needs to be anchored to something. Otherwise, it just floats off into nothingness. And But then, the, you know, the, the reverse is true as well. Like an anchor, you know, doesn't get to enjoy the, you know, the beauty of being in the sky. And so so when you find a, a great relationship between those two things, you know, it's it's just a, yeah, it's just something kind of beautiful. So one last question for you. What would you say to a younger type seven? What message would you want them to hear? I actually was coaching, did a last 24 hours have been with a guy that's 30 that uh, still hasn't gotten clarity on what he's supposed to do with his career. And he had mistyped it as a four, but as we went further, uh, he was a hundred percent seven. There was a little bit, uh, he, he was putting a moral imperative that he figure out things quickly and be the man in this case, just to be an adult and uh, be responsible and make money and be able to provide for others and just be independent and self-sufficient. So one of his homework assignments was just be present and do the best you can to kill the voice of always having to come with a great idea for him to get to that place of significance. And uh, he's like, you're kidding me. Like, this is a terrible homework assignment. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't lean in, you won't turn the corner, just like you are on your bike. You know, if you just turn the steering wheel on your bike, you're going to fall off. Uh, You've got to lean into the pain. You've got to lean to turn the corner. And and I would say that for younger sevens, that pain is you're going to learn has a lot of beautiful lessons. In fact, all that you dream about, God's going to bring about. But it is really operating from his power and operating from what he has done and the circumstances that line up when when they do, that you're really going to watch our gifting show because your identity is in him and not in, of course, happiness. Yeah, that's good. I'm hearing partially what you're saying is this idea of seven, you don't always have to be the generator. It's like appreciate what is and enjoy what is because, you know, God is already present at work, but you don't have to be the one to like usher it all in. That's right. That is exactly right. I mean, it's it's Jesus in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. I, I think for sevens, that putting yourself in neutral and uh, and allowing God to be the generator, as you're saying, is, is so helpful. Mm, That's great. That's great. Okay, so when we come back, we're going to be playing Pick Your Poison with John Fouché. Stay with us. (laughs) In today's episode of the Uniacast, we're exploring the story of type number seven. And while these folks love to have a good time, one of the areas that they can grow in is the ability to embrace pain. We all have to learn how to face these things. To explore this topic more, check out our other podcast, the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. And specifically, check out episode number 26, where the gospel meets end of life. Am I scared? Heck yeah. What's it going to be like to die? I don't know. Nobody's ever told me. Grief, I think, is like a cauldron of emotions. I know my wife is going to die. And also, I have a newborn that I have to take care of. I couldn't lose my mind. You know, it's just like no justice. Like he just died, just another human being that was killed. But I want you to know that you're not alone in asking that why question. You can listen to the Love That Neighborhood podcast by listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Or by heading over to lovethatneighborhood.org slash LTN podcast. 
Hey, welcome back to the IndiaCast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. And now it's time for Pick Your Poison. Okay, so uh, we're going to help John lean into the pain. And so our game today is called Pick Your Poison. This is a real game by the company Player 10. You can find it by going to player10.com. Here's how it works. So, John, I'm going to give you two scenarios, scenario A and scenario B. You have to pick one of the scenarios, sort of like would you rather. But before you give us your answer, Sam and I are going to try to predict which scenario we think that you'll choose, whether A or B. So I'm going to read you the scenarios. Sam and I will each pick what we think you'll choose, and then you're going to reveal your actual answer. If one of us matches your answer, that person gets a point. If we have a round where one of us is so confident in what your answer will be, then we can play our double down card, and that actually gives us two points if we guess right. But if we guess wrong, we lose two points. Are you ready? Ready. Sam, are you ready? Yes, to win. All right, here we go, John. Scenario A, travel exclusively by horse-drawn carriage. So full Very, or, very ornate. Uh, or scenario B, only be able to walk sideways. Only be able to walk sideways. So Sam, so, so ladies first, um, do you think scenario A or scenario B? I think I'm going to go with A mm-hmm. um, because... I think that that's really awesome to travel by horse-drawn carriage. I don't, I don't see a, I was gonna say I don't see a problem with it. I'm sure for like time-wise, it can be inconvenient, but I think for the for the, the showmanship of it, I think that that would be really funny, and I think that Sevens love a good laugh, and so I think for him, he might go with A. Okay, uh, I could choose the same one, but I'm not going to choose the same <laughs> one because I think the idea that for the rest of his life, when he travels somewhere, that a horse has to be involved sounds terrible to him. But if he's walking, at least, you know, it's still weird, but it's he can still, like, take a plane and take a car and take a boat. and He's just, yeah. like, doing the grapevine everywhere he goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so, John, which scenario? Well, Jesse, you seemed a little overly confident right there. I don't know if you've ever walked sideways a long time, but it kind of hurts. It doesn't sound comfortable. No, it does not. Uh, the horse-drawn carriage is what I would pick for sure. Uh, yes, I knew it. Sam, what do you mean? <laughs> you didn't know. I knew. <laughs> so, Sam, one point to you. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Round two. Scenario A, never find anything funny ever again. Or scenario B, have zero people wish you a happy birthday. Oh, man. Mm. I am going to go with A because I just think that the pain of not having anybody wish you happy birthday on the one day of the year that it's like a party for you, I think that that's too painful. So I have, I like have to go with A. Okay. I am actually going to, I'm going to risk it all. I'm going to do a double down. I think that he will choose scenario B. And so I think that never finding anything funny ever again is far more painful than just having a day a year. Where no one says happy birthday. He'll probably just go, you tell me happy birthday the next day or something. So I don't know. Uh, so maybe, I'm gonna, maybe I'm projecting onto him because for me, like the birthday thing is like huge. Like, like, yeah. yeah. John, 
The birthday thing is huge. I frequently go multiple times to Facebook uh, on my birthday just to glory in the number of people that wish me happy birthday, but I never tell anybody until now. However, that is one day a year, and uh, I love to laugh multiple times a day, so I would rather people not wish me happy birthday and cry one day and laugh 364 days. So my horse came from behind, <laughs> and I'm now in the lead. Whatever. By one point. <laughs> I've got one point. Yeah, I've got two points. you got one point. Man, the double down card. I didn't I'd expect that see, one. See, yeah. I tricked you. Okay, <laughs> round three. Scenario A, have it never stop raining. Okay. What's up, Seattle? Or scenario B, bathe in a bathtub full of glitter. <laughs> 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 oh, well, I've, re- I've really been tempted by this before. Okay. Keep <laughs> I got questions. <laughs> um, That's our next game. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't think that he would want to live in Seattle or a Seattle-like s- state. So I have to go with the bathtubs and the glitter. So and you're saying you think I he think would he he'll choose the bathtub. Yeah, I think that he'll go for the glitter over the just the dreariness because I think that sevens find so much beauty and wonder in nature and creation. And so I think that if it's raining all the time, it's like harder for them to connect with that event. Like it's just going to get old after a while and sevens Mm -hmm. like new, new change of pace. So, Mm -hmm. okay. So you're going scenario B. Yeah. I'm going to go scenario A, have it never stop raining. And partly because while I understand that there's sort of this, you know, whimsy of I'm going to bathe in glitter. You're not bathing. There's no bathing that's happening. You're <laughs> oh, just no. rolling around and glitter like a kindergarten art project. Like, <laughs> So I'm going to go A. You're going to go B. John, what's the answer? Uh, it's funny. Uh, I would definitely my, – my poison that I would pick is the bathtub of glitter. Although years for years, I wanted to move to Seattle and uh, would dream. That was one of my dreams back in my 20s until I found out it was raining a lot. So stay on. You did well on that one. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. I'll take well, it. Yeah. So we're tied. I know. This is our last round. Okay. okay. Scenario A, live without music. Scenario B, only be able to speak in rhyme. <laughs> only be able to speak in rhyme. Um, He's a communicator for a living. So is Dr. Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> live without music. Like anywhere like you can't go to a public place and experience music no there's like no music there's no music his his ears are designed at this point all music gets tuned out people could be dancing he doesn't know why they're dancing (laughs) what a unique experience that would be um this one's like stumping me i don't know which one to double down on because i have to double down come on come on come on come on come on uh you should go first no 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 make a choice (laughs) no i already know what i'm gonna choose um, so if you just want the opposite, I'm, I know what I'm going to choose. Well, tell me them again. No music or... Uh, yeah, live without music or only be able to speak in rhyme. I'm going to go with rhyming. That was my gut reaction, which like he's going to he's going to choose only speak in rhyme because it's going to bring people joy. It's creative. I think it requires a lot of mental capacity to do mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. I think that sevens have a, a, like an... A, vast mind that we aren't even like aware of so mm-hmm. i'm going to double down here's my double down card i'm putting it on the ground <laughs> and doubling down on the can only speak in rhyme okay so I, that you just did exactly what i was going to do 
So I should have gone first. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, but to keep things interesting, I'll go live without music. But for the record, if I lose, it was my it was fault. I was really right, <laughs> and I was really the winner. Okay, so uh, so scenario A or B, John, which one? I would I would definitely pick the uh, speaking in rhyme because I love music. Yeah. Although it's got to be, it would totally be frustrating. Yeah, could you imagine like trying to do like uh, the eulogy at someone's funeral? You know, oh, and man. <laughs> you're just like, I'm sorry for your loss. He was a boss. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you navigate that? You just keep it short. <laughs> well, congratulations, Sam. Thank uh, you. I on, like winning. I'm picking the right poisons. Thanks. Sorry that you lost. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. I'll get over it. Okay, so uh, and now it's time for listener questions. Uh, so this question comes from Anthelin. How do sevens find, choose, and accept contentment in the mundane? Uh, if you would answer that for me, that would be really nice. next Uh, yeah you know I think I do think that one of the things about the mundane is you can always notice something that you hadn't noticed before when when paying attention to the nuances now it requires you to really kind of slow down and it really really requires you to come to terms with the limitations and that takes a little while, but a lot of a lot of sevens will move into the ordinary quite well because after a while it becomes an acquired taste. And so you know, but it is always pretty tough. Yeah, I think um, there's some similarities. So I'm a, I'm a core type four, and I think there's some similarities between sevens and fours in terms of we both tend to long and we both tend to dream about the possible future, and then the future can always be a little disappointing once it shows up in the present. And what I find is a four is that gratitude is just a, a major pathway to contentment. Being grateful, meditating on the things I'm grateful for can really help. And so when things are mundane, yeah, just the ability to to pause and reflect and go, right now, what am I grateful for in this moment? Find some nines. Nines are good at this. That's what I thought, because nines can kind of live with an over contentment for the mundane. Like they can, but they also have like a childlike wonder when they're out in creation. They can see all the interconnectivity of of the birds and the trees and the the branches and all of that. And so I think that community um, is important for sevens and to surround themselves with people who can kind of point them in that direction. And those, in my opinion, are, are nines. So this question comes from an anonymous listener. They say, I have a friend who constantly overbooks herself because she wants to do all the things. How can I confront her about this without sounding like a nag? Mm. Yeah, I think one of the things that helps with sevens is to give them options. So instead of just like, hey, you are constantly overbooking yourself, stop it. I mean, that won't work. First of all, it doesn't work for many people anyway, regardless of type. But if you say instead, hey, what is, you know, you could go two routes. You could say, hey, when you overbook yourself, what do you not like about that? And then you're opening up creativity. A lot of times also, and this is helpful, I think, for parents, is sometimes giving your kids, if they exhibit the personalities of a seven, to give them two options. 
hey, you know, we could, you know, book less, but go do this quality thing, or we could go do another route. Instead of trapping somebody and keeping the conversation going, which you don't want to do, so that they really get into creative thinking and challenging their instinct, that two options can be helpful as well. I first read this question and thought, you know, there's not much you can do if the person's not willing to do the work themselves. So I I think that we can be helpful friends and we can, you know, draw certain things to the surface and to the attention of the other. But if if sevens are like the prodigal son, a lot of times you kind of have to hit a certain wall before you realize, like, maybe I should take a step back here. So Yeah. And also think about, like, it's an external expression of an internal struggle. Yeah. You know, the, the reality is that we overbook ourselves because... We're afraid of missing out. We overbook ourselves because slowing down and being alone becomes too painful. Mm -hmm. Uh, We overbook ourselves because we become convinced that there's something out there that's going to fulfill us. All of those are internal questions. And so the more that you're able to create space where your friend's able to do some internal, you know, conversation. But again, it depends on if they're not curious about those things, you, you can't make them curious about those things. Now, that does bring up a second answer I have. Uh, My daughter came back from a year-long gap year in missions, and they learned a kind of formula of having tough conversations that has been really extremely helpful for me. And I coach people all the time. And that you basically have four sentences. You have two words, and then you complete the sentence. So I see, I feel, I know, and I need. So in this case... You could say, I see you keep overbooking yourself. I feel overwhelmed when you get burned out and all of a sudden can't handle it. You know, I know, which is usually like, I know you mean the best. I know you want to get all kinds of neat experiences uh, in your life, but I need you to, and then you answer it. Uh, In this case, you might say, I need you to work on cutting your commitments in half. So we hit the most important ones, and this is sustainable. So I I found on having those just general difficult conversations um, that if you're doing that, you're doing more than I feel. You're you're also kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt. Like I know you mean well. You know I know this is not, nothing intentional is going on that you're trying to take me out and stress me out, but it is a way to kind of go in that conversation with some feedback that. I, I have found to be really helpful in conversations. Yeah, that's good. That's really practical and helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, John, it's been fun. Been good talking with you. It's been great talking with you guys. I really appreciate y'all giving me the chance to be on here. It's been fun. Thanks to our special guest today, John Fouché. Listen, uh, go check out the Gospel Enneagram Project. They're doing fantastic work. All their resources are absolutely free. You can find them at gospelenneagram.com. For more about John's coaching services, visit peoplelaunching.com. As always, thank you to our friends at Crosspoint Ministry who trained us in the Enneagram. You can learn more about their work and their retreats at crosspointministry.com. Our show is a production of Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood provides social action internships supported by Christian community for young adults ages 18 to 30. Come serve with us for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovetheneighborhood.org. 
Today's episode was produced by myself, Sam Stevenson, and Rachel Zabo. Engineering and editing by The Rachel Zabo. Music for today's episode comes from Murphy DX. I'm Sam Stevenson. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community. Community.